night that we're beginning to draw closer and closer together as a congregation. We had a wonderful feed down at the Vincent's house last night, and the sun was up, and it was nice and pleasant out there, no wind blowing, no mosquitoes, no humidity, just pretty nice. And everybody was sitting way back so everybody could have a chair. And then as evening came on, we all drew closer and closer together. Try Everybody trying to get close to the fire. <laughs> well, God describes himself as a great fire among Israel. And we need to draw near the fire. And as we draw near, uh, we get closer together. So... Just a little analogy that went through my head, which I appreciated and liked. Anyway, we wound up in First Kings somehow yesterday, and uh, there's still much more to learn here, so I want to go back there. Uh, we ended chapter 2 showing how Solomon had gotten rid of those enemies of his father and those that would also be there to... Uh, hurt and disrupt his own kingdom, and that the enemies had to be gotten rid of. And that has been true, as I said yesterday, from time immemorial. Uh, if you're going to have peace and everyone get along, then anyone who is rebellious or unfaithful or an enemy in any way uh, has to go away. And each of us as individuals all have thoughts that we should not have here, there, now and then, back and forth. And we all have to get all rebellion against God and against what He is doing and His work even here on the earth and its leaders out of our minds. Now, I say that because God intends to have peace throughout all eternity in all the universe. And therefore, any who will not wholeheartedly get rid of any rebellion, of anything against God or His kingdom or His people, uh, cannot be there. They'll simply be burned up and go away. Uh, so that there can be peace and happiness and joy everywhere. And you and I have been blessed in one way and cursed in another way with a carnal human mind that is contrary to God by nature. It does not want to serve God. Now, I say a blessing and a cursing. It's a blessing in the sense that he gave it to us that we might overcome it and put it aside and not give in to it so that we can see and understand and know that we don't ever want to rebel against God or go against Him in any way. Because this human nature, this mind that we have that is contrary to God, causes us to do and think things that we should not do or think. In the Old Testament, you just couldn't do it. In the New Testament, you're not even supposed to think it. Whatever it is, it's contrary to God. So he put us here with this blessing of a carnal mind. 
Have you ever thought of the way your mind works as a blessing? It is a blessing in that, over time, we come to recognize that this is not the way to go. That's the purpose. Satan had a beautiful mind, and he let it become slowly deteriorated until rebellion came, and dissatisfaction came, and frustration came. And his life was no longer beautiful and wonderful, nor was the life of those around him, a third of the angels. They began to be polluted. And over time, they came out in total rebellion because a little bitterness will grow and grow and grow until it consumes you. That's what happened to Esau. He got a little bit bitter. And then it got worse and worse and worse as time went by. And bitterness is probably, and Herbert Armstrong said this frequently, and I think he was right. Bitterness is the hardest thing there is to overcome. It just is. Once you get that kind and that level of anger that you turn bitter, it's just almost impossible to expunge that from your mind and your emotions. So that's why we have the warning there in Hebrews 12, not to get bitter as Esau did. You know, there are different tastes in food and drink, and we like sweet sometimes, we like sour sometimes. Bitter is something that's hard to get used to. We don't like a bitter taste. And once you get something in your mouth that tastes bitter, uh, it takes quite a bit to, to get that taste out of your mouth. So it's the same with emotions and attitude. Now, it's a curse at the same time to have the kind of mind we have. God did not give that to Adam and Eve right off the bat. Their mind was pure. It was simple. It understood good, and that's all it understood. That's all it saw. And then when Satan came around, when they partook of his attitude, began in a very small way to rebel, it didn't take long for that mind and attitude to totally change, and now they understood evil. They saw evil, they understood it, and they were not equipped in any way to deal with it. And they didn't deal with it. They accused each other. They accused God. And they were bitter and angry probably for much of the rest of their lives because of what had been and what they lost. And they had trouble getting over that. You don't notice anything in the Bible after their rebellion in the garden that is good about Adam and Eve. You hear the first man, Adam, who sinned. <laughs> you have that in there. But you don't have good mentioned because I don't think they led really good lives. They were so disappointed, so frustrated, so let down, so depressed that they never even in nearly a thousand years probably ever got over that. Now, I'm speculating to some degree there, but you don't see them listed in Hebrews 11 among the faithful either, do you? And if Adam and Eve were to be listed and were faithful, 
you would think they'd be listed there since they were the first two, uh, you know. But I think it went downhill for them from the time they rebelled and thereafter. Now, if they lost their chance at eternal life, I can't say. Uh, I doubt it. <clears throat> were they ever converted? Probably not. They had a relationship with God for a short while, uh, but there was no conversion process there. There was just a creation and a knowledge only of good. And then they suddenly came to know evil, but there's nothing to say that they ever repented of that or turned back to God or ever really had a chance at salvation because God did not even offer salvation to most of the Old Testament. It was never even offered until the New Covenant, except for a very few individuals whom he intervened with and gave more understanding and knowledge to. And they're listed in Hebrews 11, but there were very few of them. And he did not throw the door open to salvation uh, and eternal life to any and all who would repent and come to him until Jesus Christ did it with his disciples and on Pentecost there in Acts 2 when the new covenant was instituted. So that's something that could be talked about or argued one way or another. But we have had that same carnal mind that they wound up with ever since. And it is a blessing in that it's something to overcome so that we would never throughout all eternity ever go back to the way our minds are now. We would never want to ever rebel against God. Now, we haven't learned it yet because you and I still rebel against him in our desires, our wants, our physical needs, our whatever it is that we might desire, we are willing to put ourselves first a lot of times. And what is putting ourselves first? Idolatry. Worship of self. So anytime we put ourselves ahead of God in His ways, we're committing idolatry. And we haven't gotten over it yet. We still do it daily. Idolatry is what? Well, you don't want to think you're bad, so idolatry is also self-righteousness, is what it is. I will conclude that I am righteous and that what I'm doing is justified in however we want to come to that conclusion, and we'll go through all kinds of didos to get there, to justify the way that we are instead of changing it. So, idolatry and self-righteousness are very, very closely associated, if they're not one and the same, really. But Paul says there in Colossians 3 that covetousness is idolatry. It makes a plain statement of that. Well, covetousness is the Tenth Commandment. And if we covet something, that means that it's illegal for us, whatever it is. And if it's illegal for us and we desire it, then that is covetousness, allowing ourselves to desire what God has said is illegal. And if we do allow ourselves to desire it, we're putting it ahead of his command in him, and therefore it becomes idolatry, putting our feelings, our wants, our desires ahead of God. 
And idolatry is about as bad a sin as you can commit, putting yourself ahead of God. Now, there's some warnings about that back here in Kings. We haven't quite gotten to that yet, but hang on here. Let's go to chapter 3. After he'd gotten rid of these enemies, uh, his kingdom was established. So there were no more people there fighting what he was doing. They had all been killed, gotten rid of in one form or another, mostly uh, put to the sword. So Solomon had an affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Eternal and the wall of Jerusalem round about. So Solomon commenced almost immediately to build the temple, to build his own house, which was an incredible edifice, and also a wall about Jerusalem. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are books showing that after this came apart here in Kings, uh, they, after the 70-year captivity, they came back and built the temple, and then they built the wall around Jerusalem. So it was done again in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. <coughs> we'll find that it also is to be done again here at the end time. I just read an article uh, the other day about the third temple and the Jews getting ready to set forth to build it, along with Donald Trump. Right there on the front of it, it talked about the third temple, Donald Trump, and the rabbis, or the rabbis and Donald Trump. I thought that was very interesting in the light of having heard recently that uh, the Jews, or the Edomites in the country of Israel, had just put out a new coin with Trump's picture on it. So, uh, there's something going on there between the Jews and, and Donald uh, Trump that I'm not sure of or don't know exactly what is, but there's something going on or you wouldn't see that kind of thing. And at the same time, there appear to be hit squads out to kill Donald Trump right now. Uh, possibly even body doubles are being shown here and there riding in the presidential car uh, to indicate that he's here or he's there while really we don't know where he is. And he said he would disappear. Now, that was his own words. I will disappear. And he has. So something's going on that we don't have all the information on, whatever it is. Anyway, he said about doing this building. Uh, the people didn't always follow God. Verse 2, the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built to the name of the Eternal until those days. Uh, so they sacrificed here and there, and Solomon uh, did some of that. Although it does say he loved the Eternal in verse 3, walked in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burned incense in high places. Now that may be... Uh, that he went up and did it for God, or it might be that he did it to some degree in opposition to God. We'll find later in his life he turned pretty much against God. Now, that's the downfall of human nature uh, after having served God so well early in his life. 
That's a different story that isn't quite here yet. Anyway, he went to sacrifice, and in verse 5, In Gibeon the Eternal appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. I think it's good we go over this, because Solomon was at that time the leader of Israel, and he was the one that God was going to use to build the temple and to build Jerusalem. So, uh, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah comes in because those men, and Zerubbabel and Joshua of that day, were to build uh, the second temple, and we have that story laid out for us. Then in Haggai and Zechariah, we have a story laid out that this has to again be done here in the end times. Now, historians and commentators have said that Haggai and Zechariah are just referring back to Zerubbabel and Joshua that were involved with Ezra and Nehemiah in building the second temple, so that Haggai and Zechariah are just historical books. Do they not read the last verses of Haggai? where God says to Zerubbabel there, I will make you a signet to the nation, and I will shake all the nations. And he's talking about the day of the Lord. So the context there throws all the commentators in the rubbish pile. (laughs) Uh, We have to understand what the book itself says. So there is indeed a time here at the end when God is going to rebuild the temple, and he's going to build Jerusalem. Now, Daniel 9 is sufficient for that. Daniel 9 is a book that had to be sealed up until the end. Could not be understood till the end. So all the commentaries you want to read about the book of Daniel, you might as well throw them away too. And there in Daniel 9, it says that an order will be given for Jerusalem to be built... And 70 weeks later, having been built, the temple and Jerusalem will be defiled by the beast and the false prophet. And as Isaiah 24 says, which is an end-time prophecy culminating in the return of Christ, we'll have to flee from the temple in Jerusalem to Zion because it is defiled. So it's very clear that this has to be done again. And that's why you and I are going through this right now, is because it is of the moment. It is not ancient history. There is a people that will be gathered together for the very express purpose of building the temple and Jerusalem. And it will also be a physical temple, because Haggai makes it very clear that the people will say, the time has not come to build the temple. And you cannot find anybody who has been a part of the church in this day and age who would say it's not time to build a spiritual temple. I've made this point probably close to a thousand times now in the last 24 years. But there would be some who would say, we don't need to build a physical temple. There isn't time for that, or it isn't the Jews are supposed to do that, or whatever reason they got. It isn't the time to do that. Well... Haggai says it is, and it's an end-time prophecy, and it hasn't been done yet. And I'll guarantee you the Jews will not build the temple of God, and neither will Donald Trump. 
They might build a temple. I didn't say they wouldn't. But it won't be God's temple because the Jews are not God's people today. And the Edomites certainly aren't God's people. And that's mostly what you got in the nation of Israel is Edomites, Ashkenazi Jews. They're not real Jews. They believe in Judaism more or less, but they're not Jews, not by blood. So, as we read this, let's understand that the lessons are here for you and me. Again, I remind, did not Paul say that the Scriptures were written for those who would live in the end time, those of us upon whom the ends of the world have come? And he thought he was in the ends of the world, but he was mistaken. We are in the ends of the world. But his statement was correct. The Bible is written primarily for the people at the end of the age. Most people, from the time it was written until today, have not understood this book hardly at all. And those who are so-called Christians today and go by the name Christianity understand so little of this book, they might as well not even read it. They don't know what it's here for. They don't know what it says. It's written for the church of God, the people of God, here at the end, because they're the ones who are to fulfill everything that's here in its fullness and entirety. What you're here for is the beginnings of this. So let's listen up at what God has to say to us, because he wrote this back here in Kings for you and me today. And he wrote Ezra and Nehemiah for you and me today. He wrote Haggai and Zechariah for you and me today. And we're the ones that got to be the beginning of this and be here when the people come that God is going to gather to do this. Now you'll find that Solomon gathered the people together here. Ezra and Nehemiah gathered people together and there wound up being 42,000 of them there. We won't have that many. We'll have 10% of what was here at the end is what we'll have. But we're called upon if we understand and if we're converted. And we came here to be part of what's going on. Then God intends us to be very deeply involved with what he's doing at his work here at the end. There's no escaping that. Don't run from it. Be of courage. Stand up like a man. And do it. We had some who came, and they wilted. And they left. They didn't endure to the end of this. We're called upon to endure to the end. To be part of it. I want to be part of what God is doing. Nothing else matters. We are called to help Prepare for the kingdom of God. Just as the bride of Christ has been prepared to help him set up the millennium, we are prepared to help set up the end time work of God with a type of the millennium being accomplished along with it. 
I've gone over this in different ways many times, but here at the Feast of Tabernacles, <clears throat> we're picturing the kingdom of God. And that's why I'm talking about the, necess- the necessities of what we must do and what we must go through and the process that is laid out in order for us to get from here to there. What's our job? How, does it, how is it described? How do we go about it? Got to build a temple. At some point, we're going to have to know how to do it and where to do it and when to do it. Real soon. Real soon. Anyway, God appeared to the leader. <clears throat> He's done that throughout the Scriptures. In any era, any time you want to read about, God has appeared and given instruction to his leaders. That is a pattern throughout the entire Bible. Starts all the way back with Enoch and Noah, and with Abraham, who was the next major leader who came along. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he did the same thing uh, then with Moses. And he did the same thing with David and with Solomon. And he did the same thing with the New Testament. You go through the Old Testament, same thing. God always gave instruction to those whom he was going to use, and he appointed them to the jobs that he was going to have them do. Now, I've seen a lot of self-appointed leaders in my 65-plus years in the Church of God, and it never came to anything. (laughs) It just never came to anything. I met Moses out there near Palm Desert when I was pastoring in Southern California and had all most of Southern California. And uh, he was out there planting pecan trees and peach trees and pear trees in the desert, And he was hauling water from somewhere in tanks to water his trees because God was going to use him as Moses to lead the church to his orchard. He had been in the sun a considerable amount of time, and I think he was about (laughs) half-baked. But he was Moses. That was, I think that was probably the first Zerubbabel I met was, uh, was Steve. And I've met many since who've tried to set themselves up to be leaders. Did God instruct them? Did God guide them? Is he the one who told them to be where they were doing, where they were doing what they were doing or not? Now he always has. So if he hasn't appeared to you and showed you something, appeared in some form or fashion, and showed you something that he wanted you to do, then you're not it. I know people right now who think that they're those leaders and they've never heard from God in any way. Dream, vision, voice, appearance, whatever. What credence do they have? None. But here, following the pattern, 
God appeared to Solomon again. He appeared to him in a dream, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Solomon said, You have showed to your servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before you in truth and in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you, and you have kept for him this great kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now notice the understanding that Solomon had, having seen his father serve God all his life. And this is a dream, and Solomon is answering in the dream. But it's the words of his mind, and it is something that is coming from God, so it's not just your everyday type of dream. And the answers you give in some of your dreams are not quite this concise or this focused or this important. Yours or mine, either one. So he says, you've done this, and now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. He was humble at this point. He was meek. He was saying, I don't know how to do anything. You've made me king in place of my father, and I'm just like a child. I don't know what to do or how to do it. You see little children attempting to do some things sometimes, don't you? And they don't quite know how to do it. They don't know how to go about it. They don't know how to make it work. They don't even know how to make their arms and legs work at first. Their, their lungs work right away automatically, but their arms and legs take a while. And then they slowly learn more and more until they begin to function. Well, Solomon said, Father, I've got this new responsibility, and I don't know what to do with it. Help me. (laughs) Help me. And your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. i got these millions of people... And I don't know what to do with them. So he's focusing on what's important here, isn't he? Give therefore your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this so you're so great a people? Now, you've heard stories about the genie in the bottle, haven't you? Over time, you've heard about people who had an opportunity to have anything they wanted that would be granted by this genie or whichever fairy story you're listening to. People offered anything they wanted. Is this what they asked? Not generally. They've thought selfishly immediately. I want, I want, I want. Most people you say, oh, you bought a lottery ticket, huh? Okay, you're going to win the lottery. What do you want? Well, I want to use all that money that's coming to me to do something for God. I want to build him a temple, or I want to build him this, or I want to give him that, or I want to give it to all the poor people on earth and tell them, 
this is a gift that God gave me and blessed me with the lottery winning, and therefore I want to give all this money to all of you who are in need. I've not heard that one yet. No, we think selfishly. Now Solomon has been told by God in heaven, whatever you wish of me, you can have. Whatever. I don't see anything selfish about what he said. Not a word. Not a word. Give me understanding that I might be able to judge your people as a wise king. What a request. The speech pleased the eternal that Solomon had asked this thing. Yeah, he would have been very pleased. He says, God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, Neither have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies for yourself, implied, but have asked for your understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to your words. Lo, I have given you a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like you before you, neither after you shall any arise like you. And I have also given you that which you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that, there is, so that there shall not be any among the kings like to you all your days. So he didn't ask for anything selfishly, and God gave him the thing he did ask for, which was very important. And he said, I'm also going to give you all those things that other people would have asked for, just because... You had such a wonderful attitude and were selfless. What, what an attitude God had to work with there. Selfless. I want to give and help others, and I want to know understand how to help these people. Incredible attitude. What do our leaders do? Well, once they get elected to Congress... They immediately begin to listen to everybody that wants to pay them to pass this law or that law. They want some money from the Chinese or the Russians to sell off secrets of our government. They begin to enrich themselves, is what they do, because they're selfish to the core, and they could care less about you and me. And you can write your congressman from now till... The moon turns blue, and he won't do what you want. He'll do what those people who are giving him money want. And he'll tell you he's going to give you what you want, but he won't do it. You've seen enough presidents. You've seen enough congressmen. You know this. God had a different attitude to work with here. So I've given you it all. And then he tells him in verse 14... If you will walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David did walk, then I will lengthen your days. So he makes a conditional opportunity here. I'm going to give you the wisdom you asked for. I'm going to give you the physical blessings that any normal human being would probably ask for. And if you will follow me, I will also lengthen your days and give you a long life. Conditionally. 
And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. So immediately he did something to serve and to honor God, and he also did something for his constituents. He made them a feast immediately. So he thought of God first, and then he thought of those of whom he was ruling, and he took care of them. What did Christ tell us to do? Love me first, and love your neighbors yourself. Same thing happening right here. Beautiful lesson, clear back here in Kings, for anybody who's read what Christ said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Beautiful. Now, immediately, he made an offering to God. He made a feast for his people. And immediately, a test came. A tough one. A really tough one. Then came there two women that were harlots to the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, O my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house. And I was delivered of a child with her in this house. And it came to pass the third day after I was delivered that this woman was delivered also. And we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. Nobody else around, just the two of us with two babies. Okay? So there's no witnesses. There's no one to either corroborate or lie for or anything else. How are you going to establish a judgment in what's about to be said here if you have nothing to go on? Nothing except what they said. And people don't always tell the truth. I don't know whether you've noticed that or not, but they don't always. So, this woman says, And this woman's child died in the night. Because she laid on it. And she rose at midnight and took my son from beside me while I slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. That sounds reasonable. There might be a woman that would do that. Mine's dead, yours is alive. I'll give you this one. I don't want it anymore. I'll take yours. And when I rose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. So I'm sure she woke up very sleepily. Her baby was beside her. She didn't really look at it. She just tried to nurse it. And it didn't nurse, and she realized it was dead. Well, it may have been before dawn, and maybe she wasn't awake enough to even look yet. So in the morning, when the sun was up and she could see... She looked at this dead baby and said, Wait a minute. That don't look like my kid. That's not my baby. And the other woman said, Oh, no. But the living is my son, and the dead is your son. And this said, No. But the dead is your son, and the living is my son. Now, if you're Judge Judy here, what are you going to say? Hmm. Which one's lying? No witnesses. No paperwork. 
No nothing. Just two harlots that had babies in the cat house. And you know that they're of ill repute and low character probably to start with. And very likely both could be liars. I mean, what are you dealing with here? I'm stumped. Are you? I I mean, I would have been. You would have been too. Now what do I do? Of course, you know the rest of the story. But had this scenario occurred anywhere, anytime with most judges, they would have been at a loss. Then said the king, The one says, This is my son that lives, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living. So he rehearsed all the information he had. (laughs) That was all he had. One says this, one says that. Then what does he say? I've never heard a judge say this in my life. Bring me a sword. (laughs) How long did it take him to come up with a solution? Not very long. He rehearsed the case, about two sentences, and said, bring me a sword. Already had it all figured out. And they brought a sword. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Well, that makes a certain amount of logic. Just split it between the two. I can't tell who's lying and who's not. Let's just split it. Then spoke the woman whose the living child was to the king. For her emotions, her bowels, her insides yearned upon her son. And she said, O my Lord, give her the living child and in no wise slay it. But the other said, eh, go ahead and kill it, divide it. She didn't have the same kind of love for it, obviously. Then the king answered and said, give her the living child, and an old wise slay it, she is the mother thereof. Simple. Got to the truth just like that. Bang. How often have you even tried with your children to get to the truth of a matter? I got them lined up. I didn't do it, Daddy. I didn't do it. Who did it? Well, it was done, but nobody did it. Have you ever faced that one? (laughs) Nobody did it. Well, let's see. I think I got a solution here. Since it happened and nobody did it, I guess we're just going to have to paddle you all. And somewhere along there, the story begins to break. (laughs) You know? Well, this king had all kinds of incredible wisdom granted from God that he would not have had on his own. Can God help you? Do you have a relationship with God? Have you been called personally and individually by God? Now, I said something earlier about leadership from God and how he had always worked with his leaders throughout history in some form or fashion so that they knew what he intended and what he wanted them to do. 
Now, I didn't take it a step further until now. No man can come except the Father draw him. No one can be called and converted without the Spirit of God being with them and opening their minds, which is a carnal mind contrary to him, and making that mind begin to change and turn to God and want to serve God. And once it does, he can begin to work with that mind and begin to change it and make it come into compliance with his ways and who he is and what he is. And you can't do it on your own. He does say, seek and you will find. So we can put forth an effort to find God, and he'll look down and say, you can't find me on your own. Therefore, I will open your mind and begin to show you who I really am. So the truth of the matter is, if you're converted, if you have God's Spirit, God has been working with you as an individual in the same way he worked with Noah or Solomon or David or Abraham or Paul or John or James. He's working with you in the same way because he wants you to be a leader. Now, he may not put you in charge of the church today. He might not put you in charge of getting the water for Passover today. He might not put you necessarily in charge of anything today. Except what? You. He puts you in charge of you. Now, you were in charge of you from the time you began to get out from under the charge of your parents. But you in charge of you wasn't doing much good. You in charge of you were headed selfish directions. And now God says, I'm going to give you my spirit, and I'm going to put you back in charge of you with my oversight with my laws and my ways, and I want you to walk in them, and I want you to give me a statement, a conviction, that you are going to recognize that you as a human being are not going anywhere on your own, and you can't save yourself, and you can't live eternally. you got about 70, 80 years, and you're kaput. Now, if you want anything more than that, here's the plan. And here's what you've got to do. And you're not in charge of anybody else. You're just in charge of yourself. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Be as Solomon was, who said, I'm like a child. I don't know how to come in and how to go out. Help me, God, to live according to your will and your ways and your purpose. Keep Satan from me and help me to turn to you with all my heart. So, he has worked directly with every one of us. 
And that's why we're here. It's because he opened our mind and he is converting us. I've said before and I'll say it again. None of us are converted. We are in the process of being converted. We're partially converted. we got to be converted from being absolute, selfish, carnal human beings opposed to God to beginning to change and begin to want to serve God from His Spirit and putting aside our human nature and not giving in to our carnal wants and desires and appetites and so on, but serving Him instead. And that's a tough process to learn, and it is a slow process to learn. If you haven't noticed, human beings change pretty slowly. You can pray, you can study, you can work at, but you don't become perfect overnight. You don't become obedient and in all the right attitudes overnight. And if you do get in the right attitude, it's only a slow amount of time you slip into a bad one again. Because that's just how we are. So, we need this attitude right here. And if God was able to give Solomon wisdom and understanding, it's a direct gift. And an immediate example of it is given. He can also give us wisdom and understanding. And that's what we need more than riches. That's what we need more than anything you can name. Is understanding and having a mind to serve God. What do you pray for? What do you pray for? Spiritual gifts or physical gifts? Physical things you want or the spiritual things of God that you need and should want? Well, Solomon got it right here. And God blessed him, and he can bless us in the same way. Otherwise, why did he even include this? Why is it here? Why can we read it? Well, we can read it because God put it here for us to learn from and to internalize, accept, and live by. So, if we see what Solomon did and saw that God was pleased, then we should be asking for humility and meekness and lack of pride and ego and vanity and to serve God with all our heart and to understand how to manage our lives, and to set an example before others that they might see how we live and want to do the same. We set an example for others, in other words, so that they can learn from and see and say, man, I'd, I'd sure like to be more like that person. How often do you think anybody has looked at you and said, Boy, I wish I was more like you, whether they said it or not. I sure wish like I was just like him or her. <laughs> I'm trying to think of an example, and I can't think of anybody that would have said that of me. And you probably can't think of too many that have said that of you. Oh, maybe your kid, when I want to be just like Daddy. But he gets over it. He gets over it pretty quick, about 13, 14, 15. I don't want to be like Daddy. 
your little girls. I want to be just like mommy. I want to cook and I want to do, I want to be just like mommy. Now you get a girl that's 14 or older or 40 and you say, you're just like your mother. Oh boy, them's fighting words in most cases. Don't want to be my mother. I want to be me. I got over that pretty quick. So the instances of people saying, I want to be like you, are pretty rare. But we look at Christ himself and how he walked, and we would like to be just like he was. We're not very converted if we don't have that in our mind. I want to be like he was. And then we have all these scriptures that say, walk as he walked and think as he thought. And we're supposed to be just like him. But you know what? Everyone who is now being converted and walking after Christ and in the Spirit is supposed to be a type of Christ. Now, Zerubbabel is a direct type of Christ here at the end time. So was Moses, a direct type of Christ. So were some of the prophets. But so were you. Get it? You are a type of Christ. You are a symbol of Him. How is He looking today? How will He look tomorrow? You're supposed to be like Him. And people are supposed to look at you and see Christ. That's what they're supposed to be able to do. There's somebody that's Walking as Christ walked. Now that may have not have been said about any of us yet. But wouldn't it be nice someday to know that we had come to the point that we were enough like Christ that somebody could see the comparison. Wouldn't that be nice? Now he tells us, doesn't he, very clearly, look for the fruits. So, what we're supposed to be seeing in each other is the fruits that Christ produces. Now, when he says produce fruit, I said it recently, and I'll say it again so that we for sure get it. What do you mean, produce fruits? Love, joy, peace, meekness, long-suffering, faith, goodness, temperance. Against these, there is no law. Those are the fruits of Christ. Those are the fruits we are to produce. We are to be those things. And that's how he started the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who consider themselves not great, but in need. That was Solomon's attitude. Here he was, this is a good example of poor in spirit. I'm like a child. I don't know how to come in or how to go out. Oh, help me God. To be what I need to be. That's poor in spirit. That doesn't mean you're supposed to not have the Spirit of God. It means that you recognize your inadequacies of the own spirit in man. And that you need God's Spirit combined with the Spirit in man, your mind and intelligence, to be what you need to be. But those are the things that he mentions there in Matthew 5. Poor in spirit, the meek, uh, the peacemakers, not the peace destroyers, but the peacemakers. 
Again, he said in Haggai, in this place will I bring peace. Well, then that means he needs a bunch of peacekeepers. Now, the United Nations sends in people, and they call them peacekeepers. Want to bet? <laughs> yeah, that's not peacekeepers. Those are people that are coming in to take from, to rape, to rob, to kill. And they're going to be on our shores, and some already are, already here. And there's tens of thousands more coming who are going to come in as so-called peacekeepers. And they are going to wreak havoc and rip up our women with children and kill everybody that can't be a viable slave for themselves. That's what they're going to do. It's written in the book, and it's on our shores already and is beginning to take form. But God wants real peacekeepers. He wants people who will help create peace within the body so that the body parts all get along well together. That's what he's looking for. That's a fruit of the Spirit of God is somebody who will make peace. Peace never comes on its own. Well, yeah, death creates peace. <laughs> but as hum among human beings... Strife, argument, hate, adversity, disagreement are just natural everyday things. And if peace is going to be made, it has to be manufactured. Somebody has to back off, swallow their pride, quit defending themselves, concede, accept, Love somebody else. And he says that if you love somebody and do good to them, this melts them and helps them then to come to accept you and like you, to love you, ultimately. Pour burning coals of fire upon their head, I think is the expression. In other words, they've got this attitude... And you are nice to them. Sometimes they'll fight that. Trying to be nice to me, what do you want? <laughs> I already know you don't like me. But we're trying to be nice to me. I see through that. Well, maybe you do see through that and maybe you don't. Maybe you didn't understand their motives in the first place. And maybe then when they try to be good to you, you still don't understand their motives. Maybe they really would like to make peace. Maybe they're willing to do what's necessary to achieve it. And you're going to sit there and say, No. Get away from me. No anything to do with you. Well, keep doing good. And you know what that does? That's burning coals on their evil mind and conscience. But until we come to the point that we begin to realize, you know, maybe maybe they're not entirely the problem. Maybe I could be part of the problem. Because most of the time what I see is people say, you're the problem. 
We've all seen that. You've got the pointed finger. And then we'll say, yeah, but there's three or four pointed back at you when you're pointing one at them. But we don't pay attention to that. Because when we're angry or upset or emotional about something, they're the problem. And as long as you maintain that attitude, the problem will never go away. Now, I don't like problems, do you? I, I, I don't like feelings of anger or animosity or hate or any of those feelings. When I see it with other people or when I see it in a relationship with me, either one. Because it's just not fun. It's create, it, it destroys the peace. You know, I don't mind a lot of noise from children if it's happy noise. Happy noise I can take. They're playing together and they're yelling and shouting and smiling and getting along and having a good time. I'm good. I can handle this. But when I hear, to me, that's not a good, that's a rending sound. I don't like it. He hit me. No, he hit me first. You know what I'm talking about. I could go on and on with that. I don't like it. Shut that kid up. If it's my kid, I shut him up. Somebody else's kid, I think, oh my. Do something. You're going to put up with that? You're going to live with that? I don't want to live with that. I refuse to live with that. When I heard that kind of noise, I put a stop to it. One way or another. And sometimes it was painful to the kids. But if you're going to make that kind of noise, you're going to make more of it. Because I am going to administer something that will create more of that kind of sound. And then I'm going to let you cry for a little while. And if you, then I tell you, okay, that's enough. Now, hush. And you keep wailing. Then I'm going to give you something else to cry about. And pretty soon, you're going to get to the point that you submit to my will instead of me to yours. I will not be ruled by children. Children's lives should center around their parents, not the parents around the children. God is the Father, and our lives center around Him. That's the way it's supposed to be. And anything other than that is confusion. Now, you can read psychology books, and all these people out in the world are going to tell you, oh, don't hurt his little psyche or his little rear end. And they don't have a clue what they're talking about. I have seen a whole generation of Spock babies grow up to become hippies and rebels and worthless human beings. And if you follow the psychologists of this world, that's what you're going to have. That is the fruit of that kind of thinking. This is the book where God says, I chasten every son whom I love, and I'll make it hurt. You know, parents say, well, the Bible says thou to spank them, so 
That helped. That helped a lot. No. That helped. Ouch. That hurt. Got to hurt. They got to learn something from it. You know, if a love pat on the bottom and a anger pat or a chastening pat or feel exactly the same, I got poor kids confused. Was that love or hate? <laughs> it didn't hurt. Must have been okay. God expects us to change. And we should expect our children to change and to be different than what they are. I've said many times, and I don't know how I got off on this, but you get a baby, and he has no control whatever of himself. And most human beings on this earth have hardly any control of themselves. Young or adult. And your job, your responsibility as a parent, is to teach that child who has no control to control himself. Now, you can be an ogre and try to control that child too much, with too much punishment, with too much discipline, because you're not teaching him to control himself, you're controlling him yourself. Now, that doesn't work either. Because if you're doing all the controlling, then he'll never learn self-control. And if he gets out from under your control, he'll fall in a heap. Because you aren't there to make him do it. So don't think that by giving too much discipline, you're going to accomplish your purpose. You won't. Because he never learns self-control. Your job is to teach him to control himself. And you use various forms of discipline to help him see that if I do this, and I don't control my, I was told to do this, and I didn't control myself, then I feel pain. Next time, I'll control myself. See, he's learning to control himself. And as they grow, you take more and more control away as they learn to control themselves. And hopefully, by the time they reach age 20, they will have self-control. Some people try to control them when they're still 40 or 50 years old. No. They should have learned self-control from you sooner than that. It's not their problem at that point. It's your problem. Because you tried to exert your control over them, and you still want to control them. Now, God says when they're 20, not 18, but 20, is when he recognizes them as an adult. And you're supposed to, by then, take hands off and let them live their life and control themselves. And you've also learned that if you try to control them, sometimes you get in trouble unless they're just absolute weenies 
from the over-control you gave them in the first place, that they'll rebel against that control. And we learn, I think I better not interfere. Mother-in-laws and father-in-laws get attitudes and negative feedback because they still try to control the lives of not only their children, but their grandchildren. So, yeah, my mother-in-law did not come in as an attitude without reason. (laughs) Because mother-in-laws are known to try to interfere. No. They're adults. they got to live their own lives. Hands off. You should have taught them to control themselves when you had hands on, and you didn't. And now they can't control themselves, so it's your problem, not theirs. Now let them alone, and maybe by hard knocks, they'll learn to control themselves sooner or later. Be there in case they decide to come to you and say, Hey, Dad, what should I do? Or, Hey, Mom, what should I do? Then very carefully and guardedly give them advice. But don't take it as an opportunity to tell them everything you've been holding up for the last ten years that you've got to get said now. Because you'll probably never get asked again. <laughs> you know, we got to learn wisdom. Solomon was given wisdom. So we ask God for understanding and guidance and help in how to manage a kingdom, how to manage ourselves, how to manage our children. Now, God has an answer for every one of those things in this book. There is no part of life, any part of life, that he doesn't discuss in this book. And he is the one who knows the right formula. Worldly psychologists don't have a clue. You should throw every one of those books in the trash and never dig it out again or buy another one. They don't know God, and they don't know God's way. And they'll feed you a bunch of crap that sounds good to you. But the ends thereof are the ways of death. And that's a fact. This is where you learn it all. I mean, you can go to the Song of Songs, and it tells you all about your sex life. Gives you everything you need to know about it. Right there in one little book as a type between Christ and his bride and how they should react to each other, even a physical relationship in marriage. There are little clues here and there, but boy, that one's raw. I mean, that just, just puts it all out there. Any questions you got, pretty well answers them right there, if you're paying attention to what it's saying. So there's nothing in human experience or life, that you don't find an answer for in this book. It is God's instruction book for life, is what it is. Now, Solomon didn't have much of the Bible. He just had what Moses has written. But that's what he was to go to, and it's what God told him to go to. And he told him to serve me and do it my way, and everything will be okay. So whatever the subject might be in life, if you need an answer, this is where you go. Has all of them. There's nothing that is not answered here, 
and even if you put all the scriptures together, a balance in the whole thing. Yeah, there's discipline in here. And if that's the only ones you read, you'll probably give too much of it. But then if you read about mercy and love and forgiveness and, and some of those things, that will temper that. So that you, if you put all the scriptures together on any one subject, all the scriptures, you're going to find the right balance in what to do and what not to do because God is perfectly balanced and his word is perfectly balanced. This is the book you study when you want to know anything about life. And God wrote these things about Solomon here, and I didn't get very far. But let's get it in here and here of what this is about. It's about you and me. It's about our very lives. It's about eternity and all the lessons we need. I mean, oh, I could go so many places in this book and pick out the exact same things we're picking out right here. Because the principles of God are always the same. They're eternal. And they always work. If you follow them, they work good. If you don't follow them, bad comes. So, let's follow them. I'll stop there.